Hi everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. So we're back kind of on uh, short notice here. Usually we take a couple weeks between episodes, right? Yeah. But a lot going on. There is a lot going on. And so this this episode is in some ways a, a continuation of last week. Last week we talked a little bit about the coronavirus and we talked about uh, the death of George Floyd. And this week we are just, we're really just continuing to give some social commentary from our perspective, from our pastoral lens, hopefully uh, from a Christian one. So just to begin, talk, just talk to me, Jeremy, about where your where your heart is right now. What you're what you're thinking about? Um, we've got some ideas for direction, but we're just going to share a little bit personally here at the beginning. Yeah, I as I watch, um, and I had, I've been trying not to watch as much news, and that that could sound pretty um, like I'm trying to escape the situation and and it's not that as much as more of the fact that the fact that we once again just seem to be so polarized and I think the hardest part and the part that I wish that we could do better at is just have better conversations and I feel like and you even last week during the podcast even I would say something and then I would qualify what I was trying to say or what I was trying what I wasn't saying yeah and and I just hate it that we can't just talk without without saying something and then it has all of these other ramifications for what 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 we're not saying and or what we're not trying to not say and and it, like I said it just seems like it's hard to have a conversation and and I'm, and I'm probably guilty of that as well you know when I read things sometimes you read things into it that like I said you can't say the cops are there's some bad cops without people saying, so you don't like the cops. Like, well, that's not what I, that's not what I said, you know? And it, yeah. I just, it's just, I'm, I'm struggling or I am lamenting maybe the fact that we've gotten so such to a place in our country that you can't just sit down and talk about an issue without feeling guilt or guilty by association on some level to something that maybe you don't even agree with to begin with, you know? And, and so it's just hard I feel like that's the hardest part about where we find ourselves is is you can't say something and it mean what you want it to mean. <laughs> One of the thinkers that I was... That, that probably doesn't make any sense, but I feel like that's the struggle no, it, on it some no, level. No, no. It does. One of the thinkers I was reading most last year and listening to said, not everything is political. Not everything is political. Right. When you go to dinner with someone, it doesn't mean that you're endorsing their political views. Right. When you talk to your neighbor, it doesn't mean that you stand for everything that they're standing for, right? The person who said that was Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> and so when even when I say his name, now all of a sudden that statement of his becomes political, which is funny. So he becomes, he becomes kind of um, whatever the stereotypes of Jordan Peterson are, um, maybe conservative... Um, anti-liberal uh, and um, what's funny about him in particular is he's Canadian and he's very he's very popular in America among conservative circles and um, he he kind of although he's making a lot of money off of conservative Americans so it's, it's not like he's wanting to 
put them down or anything. But he also he also recognizes like it's it's funny that I'm that I get put in the American political categories because I'm not American. You know, I do my work all over the world, but in America, I'm perceived a particular way because in America, you get put in particular political boxes. You know what I'm saying? And I think that says more about the person that puts you in those boxes sometimes because it makes, they're trying to make themselves feel more comfortable with you as a person. And if I can just put you in this category, I think we've talked about that before, then it makes me feel better because then I can be more comfortable with my own feelings. Mm -hmm if I can put you in a place and categorize you in, in, in a file or a whatever in my mind, then I can rest insured and say, well, they're just that. They are just a liberal or they are just a um, cop hater or they're just a whatever. Then I can just not have to listen to what you're saying because I just file you away in my understanding of what I think about what you're saying. Sure. So that's kind of where I am. What about you? What What's, what's kind of running through your your mind so i've i've really been thinking a lot about justice um we were talking before coming on that my wife and i we just watched just mercy which i would highly recommend to everyone would you second that endorsement is it absolutely is it worth a, worth watching it's really good it's, and it's free yeah it's free on amazon right now amazon's giving allowing uh, some movies to be streamed that are dealing with racial inequality and justice uh, so we just watched Just Mercy about Brian Steve the Brian Stevenson story, well one of the stories of his life, who's a lawyer who moves who graduates from Harvard, then he moves to Alabama mm -hmm. in order to try and bring about justice for people, particularly on death row, where he finds that one in nine people on death row, there are serious issues with their their case or they maybe even false accusations have been brought against them. These are people not just in jail generally, people on death row. Right. He makes he he has a TED talk where he says, you know, if if one in nine airplanes had serious malfunctions, none of us would fly. None of us would fly. Right, right, right. But we're talking about death row. We're talking about killing people. Where we have what is that, an eleven percent? One in nine is like 11% margin of error that we're killing people. And the, and the fact of the matter is, as we've gone gone back, it's troubling to go back through court documents and records of people who have been killed um, on death row and recognize there have been people in America that have been executed by the state that have done no wrong. Yeah. At least for for what they were, you know, accused of. Um, so anyway, I've been thinking about justice because I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm particularly a worship pastor, there's a passage in Amos that has always kicked me, that has always rubbed me the wrong way because in a sense, we were talking about my job security, particularly last <laughs> week or in our last episode. Right. This, is what, this is what Amos, the prophet Amos says, or God says through the prophet Amos in Amos chapter five, he says, I loathe, I spurn your festivals. I am not appeased by your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings or your meal offerings, I will not accept them. I will pay no heed. To your gifts of fatlings, spare me the sound of your hymns and let me not hear the music of your lutes, but let justice well up like water, righteousness like an unfailing stream. 
we've many of us have heard that last uh, passage. I think Martin Luther King Jr. used it. The um, idea, let justice well up like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. There are other translations that say like a mighty torrent, you know. Right. It's a beautiful piece of prose, but we don't often think about it in the context of what God's saying is your worship services are a joke because there's no justice going on in the streets. And what's interesting to me, just thinking about the church in America right now, is that we just came out of a season of a pandemic shutdown where we're all isolated and secluded in our homes. And what our church is doing primarily, while well, they're producing these big, and, and probably I'm talking more mega churches, large church, large churches now that have the technology. What are what are we seeing from mega churches? But they're putting together these very polished, like song and dance, um, worship services for people to digest in their homes. And we're talking a lot in the church in America about the worship experience, you know. But what God says, but but and what comes on the heels of that? But this radical uproar this outcry of racial injustice. And in my mind, because of this passage in Amos, the two are so connected. It's as if the church in America were really focusing on what does it mean, you know, to worship God in kind of a choreographed kind of way. And we have not, um, we've not spiritually formed our people in this to, to understand that fundamentally God cares a lot more about justice than he does about the uh, antics of public worship, you know? And I'm just, I'm having somewhat of an existential crisis because I'm asking myself the question, do I, just in my life, do I, do I care more about preserving my vocation of, of worship for the sake of, you know, bringing people together for worship of God in a particular way do I care about that more than I care about justice in society? You know? Um, and so that's very much a personal reflection. I realize like probably if you're having, if you've been, you know, having existential angst in the coronavirus, you probably are having it as it pertains to your own profession. So this is really a, it's a personal and professional reflection for me. Um, but it, but I'm, I'm recognizing like, I, I, Jeremy, I don't know if you do this. I think about the judgment a lot. I legitimately do. I, I sometimes wonder to myself, like, if I stand before God, when I stand before God someday, is he going to bring this up? Or, like, <laughs> I think about it all throughout. Um, bring what up? Just anything throughout my day. All right. So, like, um, so uh, if I, you know, am a— Oh, I you, see. So in if, the moment, you think, is this going to come yes, up? Is this going to yes, come back at some yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know— um, I don't I don't know what would be an example. I don't know how much of my dirty laundry I want to <laughs> spill out on— you know, here how vulnerable you want yeah, to yeah, be. Yeah. On, you, know. you know, so like if I'm if I'm in if I'm enjoying some some sense of indulgence, you know, I wonder to myself, you know, uh, while I'm taking a day off to go swimming with my kids, you know, I wonder whether or not you know this is something that has eternal ramifications. Like, should I actually be spending time with with uh, orphans that don't have any parents right now, as I'm like just enjoying the day with my own kids or whatever it may be? I really do think about I think about the judgment in a very in a very real way very very often you know um but i i wonder about with my own life like am i am i doing with my is my life centered around the priorities of god yeah that's really something that the coronavirus and this time of racial injustice or upheaval whatever you want to call it 
is bringing out in me is I'm asking myself the question, are my life priorities the priorities of God? And it, um, it's a troubling question. Yeah. I mean, I you know? think, and, you know, not from the, when you told the camp story about the counselors uh, oh, they got raptured. Yeah. <laughs> they got raptured yeah, yeah. a long time ago, yeah. Even, you know, even if that's not your paradigm, it's still something that I think, I think it's troubling. It's interesting. I think um, one of my professors in college kind of enlightened me on this, but this whole idea of judgment, I think, is interesting, especially in light of of all of the stuff that's happening in our culture. Because I think we have this understanding, and I I hope I'm not like just destroying your idea of what may happen at the end. But in a Hebrew con, we think of judgment as kind of like courtroom scene, mm-hmm. but in the in Scripture, that's not how they they didn't have that American understanding of law and justice. And so we've kind of translated that into, I think our context, you might say, and, and think that somehow judgment is like you sit in a courtroom and a judge is up there and God's going to be the judge. But in the old Testament, they have no concept, no understanding of that. So when they talk about judgment in the old Testament, um, I don't know that it's, it's that idea, but it's more of, um, I think the Hebrew when the prophets talk about God will, it's kind of when God arrives and, and in his arrival, his presence, his light, his, his, his life will show the world and all the things that are happening in that context for what it really is. Um, so it's more to me of like turning on a flashlight in a dark room. You, you don't, the flashlight is not the point, but the flashlight shines and illuminates what is happening around. And so judgment, we have an American conceptual idea of what that judgment's going to be like. But I think it's more of when I stand in God's presence, my life will be shown. And maybe that's even a more scary thought. All of God's light will shine in my my understanding of who I am and not just what I think I am, but actually who I am. Uh, I, I try to equate it sometimes like um, if Mother Teresa were still alive and she were to be sitting in the room that we're currently sitting in, like she wouldn't have to say a word. <laughs> and I think my life would be shown dramatically in a lot of different circumstances. Just her presence, just her and who she is and how she lives. Um, and then I would be thinking about my life and what I'm, you know, in those instances where you're like, oh, man do I really need that TV, that extra TV? You know what I'm saying in my room and, and things that I think sometimes are so important, just her sitting in this chair that's right next to us, she wouldn't have to say a word, but just her presence alone. And so I think judgment is this understanding of when we allow ourselves and our lives to be in the presence of God, in the, the understanding of who he is, it starts to, to show us and, and, you know, and in John one, it says Jesus is the light of the world. And I think that that light is to be shined in the darkness and the dark places. So how does that relate to where we currently find ourselves? I think there's a lot of, in our history as a country, things that have happened that have been swept under the rug and not been talked about and not been brought to light. And so what we are seeing happening is things that are being illuminated. And I think when Sharon was here one time, you know, we talked last time, the most, 
the, the topic we've talked about the most is race on our podcast, which is just kind of, and we've only had like 20. It's kind of unintentional, but it does continually come, come up. up again and again and again. But something that Sharon brought to light, and I actually heard it on a, something last night I was watching. All of these things that are happening have always been happening. We're just being made more aware of it because we have cell phones in our pocket where people are getting videos. And so it, she said, this isn't a new thing. It's not like, it's not like, cops and and african-american relationship is something that's just somehow sprung up out of the middle of nowhere we're just being we're just being made more aware that it happens and so it's coming to light more and so this idea of of bad things coming to light and that whole idea of judgment in the old testament and what that was like i think we are seeing right in front of our eyes so judgment is a part of Christian eschatology, and like like you said, you f- your your sense is that the concept of judgment in America has been kind of co opted by our legal our legal system, uh, which you know Jesus does say that at the end, uh, the um, the Son of Man is going to come and separate the people the angel well the angels separate the people is that what he said and there'll be um, the sheep and the goats right, right, right this right. kind of idea, so there is there is some sort of there is a sense of legal judgment, but but so much of so much of judgment as far as eschatology is concerned in the Bible is metaphor, and so like you say, like we kind of we bring our own vision of of judgment or legal judgment into we read it into the Bible in many senses. A very important passage from Paul in First Corinthians chapter four regarding eschatology, the future vision of the world, the, the coming of the Lord, uh, is concerned with judgment. I just want to read these verses. Uh, this is this is First Corinthians four, starting in verse one. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself, but my conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Um, one, of my, one of my greatest anxieties, I think, is that, and, and I pray this, I pray this every morning. I say, God, search, search me. Test my anxious thoughts. Know me. Search my heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. These are some of the prayers. I I honestly am am most anxious that however judgment looks at the end, that God will say to me, you just had self-interested motives. Yeah. One of the things that's, as far as an eschatological vision for the world, that's compelling to me about the times that we live in is it does seem that people are being brought to light. He said, uh, Paul says, when he comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives yeah. of men's hearts. Yeah. And one of the things that Brian Stevenson is doing in Alabama is he's exposing the motives of racist judges over the last three decades. And I think what's, um, the Apostle Paul, once again, uh, says the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says this, against things... There is against such things. Against such things, there is no law. Yes. 
And I find, and, and so I think what he's trying to say is, this is who God calls us to be. And if you're living this because this is who you think God is calling you to be, I mean, just think about the fruits of the spirit. I mean, love, like we could use all of those in from top to bottom in our country, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The last, that last one there for me, I yeah, mean, that's, that's a podcast series. It could be yeah. self-control. And I think that as we are continuing to once again, see all the things that are unfolding, I don't think that anything that is happening is new. It's just being brought to light. And so for us, I think what is a big piece, and we talked a little bit about this before, something that I'm really starting to to try to help my myself, because I'm not I'm not where I need to be, but also others, is I think we have to get a educate ourselves on understanding that that what's happening, um, What's happening is not something that just happened. It didn't happen in a vacuum, um, but it's something that uh, is continually repercussions, you might say, or things that have always been happening. And so I think we would do well in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own spirits. I think we would do well in the church to try to educate ourselves and understand that once again, these things, um, they're not just happening in a vacuum, but they are outcries and outcomes and and up uprisings that sounds more negative but it's, it's yeah, like an uproar it, uproar yeah from things that have been happening potentially since the the birth of our nation so how do we how do we navigate that and learn about that i want to take the conversation to justice in the church and maybe have a conversation about the role of church of the church in society as it pertains to justice. I'm going to start by talking about some of the things that I'm seeing from church people on social media. Because in many, in many ways, as I'm watching parishioners, people who are part of the congregation, fellow, fellow Christians, those claiming to be a part of the priesthood of all believers, right? Um, as, I'm, as I'm seeing people talk about these national issues in political ways and with secular categories, I'm becoming more and more aware that in the church we do not have a concept of justice or the role that Christians play in um, opposing or supporting the government. I don't know that these are things that we talk about enough and that we have a good understanding of our identity. Because the church has always played a role throughout history <laughs> but sometimes it hasn't been for kingdom justice like sorry i just wanted to say no, but i think that that is a the church has always had a voice the question is have we used our voice for kingdom issues rather than political issues and so okay so historically then let's just talk a little bit about america one of the fascinating things about america is the separation of church and state because when when america was founded the, the idea of the 13 colonies, those 13 colonies were actually divided based a lot on religion. So you had uh, like Mennonites and Amish in Pennsylvania. You had many Catholics in Maryland. Upstate New York, you had a bunch of very strange sects of, of what we would consider cults now, like the Oneida and different, different forms. Massachusetts Bay colony was very much Puritan 
and and you could you could go on and on and on. A, a Catholics had a strong presence uh, in Louisiana, in the South, in Florida, you know, and, and we were very much separated based on these differences. And in in early America, when people of different faiths would move into the communities, there would be uh, injustice. There would uh, there would be um, discrimination based on religion. Really, uh, I don't know that many people know this. The the element of our um, early American uh, constitution that is this um, the separation of church and state uh, was written modeled after earlier 17th century um, laws that were that were written to help preserve the lives and rights of Catholics in the face of Protestant persecution. Because Catholics were coming to America, were moving to America, looking for the same freedoms and justice that uh, the Puritans and others were looking to find in America, and they weren't finding it because the Protestants were treating them terribly, Amen. right? And we're saying, go back to Europe, you know? Yeah. Go back to the Pope, you know? And so so anyway, I think I what I – so America was, was then founded with this idea of separation of church and state as this – I, as this uh, maybe uh, way of ensuring that uh, the church was not making decisions in the government, you know, because it had been because it had played out poorly in Europe. But 150 years later or so, uh, you know, we we find we find that the church is was was still kind of pulling strings in the middle 20th century. Uh, and it really became interesting in the 80s. And we talked a little bit about the rise of the religious right a couple podcasts ago mm-hmm. um, where the the church is, has been kind of remobilizing in a new sense in the last 50 years, kind of trying to ask the question, how do we get government power back? Right. Which technically the United States was set up so that government wouldn't be uh, – wouldn't make their decisions based on – uh, the dis- the kind of religious ideals of a few people, but that we would have some sort of religious freedom. So that's that's the kind of American context, right? So anyway, I I say that to say I've been thinking, trying to think about what is our role in the church in respect to government and the social situation, and I've been listening to the, the different postings, seeing the different postings of people in my church. One of the things that's been circulated is this thinker Candace Owens. You, are you familiar with her at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, seen her on a few shows and stuff. So she is a a black woman who tends to be reposted by conservatives. Yeah, that those tend to be outspoken conservatives tend to be you know reposting her stuff. I don't want to say that that's what she is. I don't know what her brand is particularly. Well, she has this video regarding George Floyd that is kind of interesting. And in the video, she says, you know, I don't support George George Floyd. And the reason that I don't support George Floyd is because he represents the bottom five or the bottom 10% of the black community. And her case that she makes in this video is that the black community is one of the only communities that cares for or is concerned for the bottom 5%, the bottom 10% of their society. And I And I've been thinking about this. Just because in some senses, I think that she's right. I think that the black community does tend to um, not cater to, that may be too strong, but lift up the voice of the bottom five or bottom 10%. And I've been thinking about, I've been thinking to myself, why might this be the case? 
why might it be the case that millionaires like um, LeBron LeBron James, who are at the are kind of at the pinnacle of society, why do they find it important to speak to police brutality against people that are oftentimes you know uh, doing things wrong? I, you know what was George Floyd doing? He was a uh, like writing bad checks or he had handed him a twenty like a counterfeit. Bill or something they like that. They thought this. he had a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know if he did or not. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. You know, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's, right. it's you know. So so she you know she makes this point. You know, why are we all? He's doing he's doing illegal stuff. You know, maybe he's got it coming to him. You know what's interesting about the black community? They understand that every part of everyone in their community ought to have a voice in their community. That is a very Christian idea. Hmm. And one of the problems I have when I see people in my Christian community reposting Candace Owens videos and saying, see, she's right. Why are these people, why, you know, why are we listening to all these criminals? What makes me sad is I recognize in, the, in, my, in our white subculture, we have this stratification based on how good we think other people are. Yeah. Yet, yet, we sing songs and have soteriology about the idea that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yeah. right? But in reality, we don't, churches, churches and white churches in America primarily do not have missions to their local jails. Like, like we don't, we don't, we don't, I'm not saying that no, I'm not saying that no white Christians in America care about justice. But I've been a part of a lot of congregations in my life, and I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I've heard a message or a call to some sort of justice reform for white people. Because quite honestly, we are in, in the Christian subculture that I'm a part of, we are concerned primarily with maintaining the status quo of middle-class Americans. Could it be that... Um... So like when we read Mary's Magnificent in my setting, yeah, we hear it differently than if when it's read in a predominantly African-American context about the, the powerful being brought down and the, the lowly being raised up. And, and so I hear that, and, and just going on what you just said, I don't have it that bad. So why do I want things to get all jumbled up? Why do I want, why do I want God to come in and kind of wreck the system when the system is somewhat working for me? And yet these people who, you know, out of 1860s and, and then, you know, you start having these churches, they were singing these, these Psalms of lament and they were singing the songs that the people of God sang on the rivers of Babylon. And they were, um, singing and and so it is it has always been a part of their narrative and so yeah they they have that context and so even people like lebron james who in the american idea has made it and has some would say risen above potentially where he came out of and and yet he potentially i don't know his story but was was in church services where he was spiritually formed 
to understand that the God of the Bible was a God of the slaves of the Hebrew children and God was the slave and the God of the ones who were the oppressed. And, and even as you read the, the orphan and the widow and those who were on the underside of society, they heard that again and again and again. And so it caused them to have this understanding that in the end, God was going to make all things right. And that Messiah that when Mary sang that song and in the prophet Isaiah, when the, he would prophesy that this is what was going to happen. And this whole thing was centered around their life and their understanding of how the world works. And we don't do as well to, to preach or to hear scripture from through that lens or from that vantage point. And so we, we do, we get upset and we think, how, how dare they, how dare they, how are they reading the Bible, the same Bible that I am and getting that, that image. And, 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 you know, just even talking about Facebook, one thing that bothers me about Facebook is nobody ever posts anything that goes against what they believe. We just post stuff that promotes our own ideology and our own thought. And I think that there's a lot of great great history and great understanding that once again that community does does understand that there are people who don't have the life that they do but that maybe this god they were taught as kids growing up and they sing songs and maybe we need to bring back some of the african-american spirituals and sing them in our churches and and it might help us better understand the the spirit from which they were birthed came actually out of life yeah (laughs) and out of scripture and not just written songs to to make a buck on, well, so yeah. on the top charts. So let's let's talk a little bit about the eschatological visions in America. So eschatology is the is the understanding of end things, the return of Christ, Christ coming back. Coming to America, there were two fundamentally different eschatological visions. Um for for white people for people in power, for landowners, the eschatological vision was very much a promised land vision of entitlement, that I was coming into something that I was entitled to. Uh, there, was, there was this idea of divine providence that God had fortuitously commanded that I be entitled to this land, although it may have belonged to Native Americans Although it may have involved me bringing slaves to help me develop it because with my own two hands, I couldn't do it. There was this idea in, in white people throughout, throughout um, and there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of uh, historians who have, done, who have done work in this. I would encourage you. I'm looking back at my bookshelf just to try to get some titles. Conrad Cherry has a beautiful uh, book, compilation of essays throughout American history called God's New Israel. Um, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of history of just the this idea of entitlement that is very much a, a part of white, particularly Protestantism in the history of America. Well, there was another eschatological vision that is not talked about as often, and it was the it was the vision of slave religion. Uh, I studied at the University of Chicago with Dwight Hopkins, one of the um, greatest, uh, I think, black religious historians in America right now. Dwight Hopkins wrote a book called Down, Up, and Over, Slave Religion and Black Theology. I'd encourage you to pick it up, Down, Up, and Over, Slave Religion and Black Theology. Uh, One of the things that he uh, talks about and others talk about is is kind of the eschatological vision that black people had. Uh, And and if you've done any reading in, in 
the literature, the religious literature of blacks and uh, particularly the 19th century, you've heard this, the analogies made to the Ohio River being the Jordan River, kind of this analogy, right? Of one day we're going to cross when we cross the river, you know, um, in coming into coming into the promised land for them was not coming into America necessarily. It was coming into the north, coming into a place where I was no longer enslaved, you know. And what was interesting about slave religion is that they didn't feel entitled. They would go to church on Sundays as an escape from slavery, in which pastors would say to them, you know, our lot in life is to be slaves. And we are called to be the best slaves that we can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they would, in church, they would recognize, uh, in many ways, the el- they would point out the elephant in the room, you know, that they're being subjugated, that they're being mistreated. But they would ask the question, how are we to best be Christian? And their response to it was, we're going to, t- we're going to continue to serve or we're going to escape and embrace the eschatological vision that is ours in the Bible. But it was their their idea was fundamentally different than the white Protestant idea that this is my land that I'm entitled to it, right? Well, over the years, what's interesting is in many ways the black the black church eschatological vision has been coming true. Hmm. There was there was the um, the Emancipation Proclamation where slaves were were freed, right? Many of them via the work of Harriet Tubman and many other other individuals they did escape and they found they found freedom in the north i'm not saying that life all of a sudden became easy for blacks that's not what i'm saying i'm not saying that their eschatological vision has been completely realized but what i think is really really interesting is that like they have had as a as a as a people in the sense of um for some reason we're anxious in these days to like to say that to say blacks and blacks and whites and the fact of the matter is we just we do have different colored skin that sure. is, we're not fundamentally different in the sense of character, but there is, we have historically been racialized and it's okay It's okay to name it. I just want to give you permission out there to just kind of name it and say, you know what, we do have this issue of black and white based on the color of our skin. But based on the color of, of the skin of black people, um, as, a, as a group, there has been this uh, historical eschatological vision that is from the, that from the underside we are going to rise up. And the, the, white, the white eschatological vision is that we are entitled to be on the top. This is, God has ordained this. This is kind of, when you hear people talking about the issues with white prosperity gospel, this is kind of the issue with it, is that the Bible is not just a book of entitlements, but somehow we have turned the Bible in, in white Protestantism into name it and claim it theology, right? Back to Candace Owens, back to the church. When I hear Candace Owens talking about, you know, you know, why are blacks so concerned with the bottom five, the bottom 10%? Well, because historically they've been more Christian. They've been more true to the character of scripture as a group of people than we are. I don't know if LeBron James went to church. I, I don't know. But I do know that people that he associates himself with have a very strong eschatological vision that they didn't just come up with and make up on their own but it came from this these hundreds of years of slavery and hardship where they were crying out to God calling out to God hoping that one day that future generations would experience the hope of heaven here on earth would experience the hope of freedom would experience the hope of justice right um and so when I when I see people in my church posting Candace Owens kind of as a an endorsement of her 
ideology, I think, well, she may be right, but she's not Christian. Hmm. She's not Christian. And so although, although she may be making points that further a political ideology, I am not concerned with justice in the sense of I'm trying to further a political party and in a political party, that's where I'm going to find justice. What I'm, what I'm concerned with is the corruption of the justice of the eschatological vision in the church. Let me say that again. I'm concerned with the corruption of the eschatological vision of the church and that we, that justice has been co-opted, that judgment, that judgment, Christian judgment has been perverted. And we, uh, we, as you know, and you said it a little bit ago, in thinking that we think that like in some ways the American political system is, or the the American justice system is the eschatological vision of hope from the Bible. And it's not, it's not, it's not been a just system and it's not been a just system to so many people. And we in the church ought to be looking for ways for our role to help correct that in society. And I feel like politically... We even talk about, um, when they talk about voting blocks, they talk about the white evangelical church and they talk about the African-American church. How sad is that? And I don't see anywhere in scripture that says that there's, that that difference should be there, but that we are all who love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as yourself as part of the church. And yet... Paul says in, in, in the church, there ought to be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Yet what are the things that separate us most in America? Gender and race. And so it's just funny that even when we talk politically, we have this divide <laughs> as what we would call pe- people who are outsiders. Now they may go to church and maybe Christians, but an American political ideology looks at the church of Jesus Christ and even separates us into how we vote and what that looks like. And what would it look like for a church or the church to come along and say, we we're all brothers and sisters. We're all, we're all the church we're not, we're not going to allow you to categorically separate us based on who you think we're going to vote for, who you, how you think we're going to vote or think about certain issues. Um, and maybe that's one way we can start to have a better conversation about justice is, is we reject, we reject it and don't believe that when you talk about the white evangelical vote and the African, that there were two different, we are the same and, and we need to hear their voice and they need to hear our voice. Um, it's funny because a guy named Greg Boyd had a quote on Twitter the other day and he said, um, you know, it's funny. We often talk about that the last temptation Jesus faced was the temptation for political power. Hmm. And we talk about how that was a negative thing. And Jesus rejected that. You're talking about um, when he was in the desert with, with, with the, the devil. Yeah. With, yeah, 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 with yeah. Satan. With Satan. Yeah. And he says, I'll give you all the powers of the world. I'll give you right. this political power. And, and he says, no. And yet it seems like the church today is just clamoring for political power. And, and so we say, Oh man, that would, Jesus says that was bad. And that's not what this kingdom is about. And yet it seems like again and again and again, all we want is to, to have this political influence and maybe Jesus could teach us something that that's not the mission. That's not the goal of what the church is to be about. Are there things that happen politically? Absolutely. But we don't, we don't, we don't cower or we don't 
we don't sell our soul to people or to organizations or to groups and neglect the gospel that God has called us to be here to preach so that we can get some Supreme Court judges or or get something that that we think is going to make us feel better. It's never been about that. And yet sometimes somehow we've missed that third temptation of Jesus um, and, and seem to fall into it more often than uh, than not on some level. I I pray that this is a time of refining for the church. That maybe in order to save ourselves grief at judgment, whatever that may look like, that we ask the question that David asks, you know, search my heart, O oh God. That as he comes, that as Christ comes and he brings to light what is hidden in darkness and he exposes the motives of individuals' hearts, uh, that maybe, um, I think it's the prophet that prays, may the words of my mouth, or um, it may be David, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O oh God. I, I hope that we are allowing the Spirit of God to refine us in these days that we are allowing ourselves to be defined by his justice and his judgment not just not just our own the evangelicals podcast is recorded at lima community church of the nazarene in lima ohio 